Doc Rivers continues to time and time again not get it when it comes to getting. Oh! Let him play. You bet one one bone to win nineteen. I'm where? What site do you use where you can actually bet one buck? <laughs> they let you do fifty cent bets. Oh my goodness, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, literally, like he dropped Superman down like the drain. Comes out, like, God damn it, Superman. <laughs> I don't know, honey. I don't know where he got that from. From Los Angeles, this is Dave in the City. Part of the Dit Cow Sports Network. Now, here's Dave Medina. Good evening, sports fans. It's lovely to have you here for the Big Golf Show. We need to... We, you don't, you're not hearing us on YouTube right now. So I need a minute just to re-engage the audio device. Um, the problem is that there was an update to OBS, and there was also an update to not only an update to OBS, but there's also an update to Windows 11, which messed up the, all my audio stuff. So I had to re-engage the uh, the uh, the line in. So I just realized that as we were starting stream. So now you hear me if you're watching on YouTube. If you're on the podcast, you you heard me the entire time. But now you hear me here on on screen, so now everybody should be good to go. Um, let me bring in. Let me just may wait for all of our folks to come in. Mike has joined us. I just have to let John into the waiting room, and we're here tonight. Uh, good to have you with us from the Dave and the City Studios at the home of champion Southern California, um, and one more champion in the world of golf. It is Matt Fitzpatrick, who just who just fought off um, Will Zalatoris, who made an incredible putt, but it missed by an inch. Which would have tied the, um, which would have tied tied Fitzpatrick at the top, at the 18th hole, in Brookline, Massachusetts, for the U.S. Open Championship in the final round on Sunday, and um, that miss was a difference. It was an incredible tournament, a lot of juice every single day, and uh, it's just an incredible job by Fitzpatrick. Yeah, feeling for our friend John in Connecticut who had two long shot bets on Zalatoris. Uh, just a great call, great call. It just didn't work out, you know. But, uh, you know, he's been in the mix on all these. I, I, I feel like eventually one of these will hit. But let's bring in our panel anyway. And uh, we'll start. We'll, we'll introduce everybody one by one. Hello, Mike. Hello, John. Let me go to Mike first. Mike, welcome back to the program. How's it going tonight? I'm doing well, Dave. Thanks for having me on. And, uh, of course, I sympathize with John's uh, betting beats there. And, of course, myself, I had a couple uh, – a classic right church Ron Pugh scenario these last two weeks because I had Matthew Fitzpatrick to win the Canadian Open and I had Rory McIlroy to win the U.S. Open. And of course, <laughs> I'd flip the uh, if I'd flipped the order, I'd be having a much better time this upcoming weekend than I would otherwise be having. But hey, listen, I, I already hit an outright bet once this year. If I get mm-hmm. one more, I think I've probably had a good year. So can't really complain. It was an exciting tournament, and, and it'd be nice to talk about it with you guys. I'm with you, and uh, it is really hard to get one of those right. I mean, I mean, just to be in the mix is a really good spot. So, John, we give it back to you. How's it going? To, how's it going tonight? You, you hanging in there? Yeah, thanks for having us back on, Dave. Um, you know, I, I've had a I've had a number of outrights this year. That would have been a nice one to hit. Will uh, I think I had him twenty eight to one, and then I did a live bet before the third round with a boost. It was near forty to one, so I definitely was rooting for him for both of those bets. Um, and I, you know, I think I'd like, I have had four winners this year and I also had like four or five second places. So it's still been a really good year in terms of the betting scenarios with the, with the outright bets. But 
Um, it's, it's Mike is exactly right. Like I've been betting Fitzpatrick basically like almost every tournament. And then of course the one tournament, I don't bet him. He ends up, he ends up winning, but you know, it, it is what it is, but it was a great tournament and yeah, lots to discuss tonight, not only with the tournament, but obviously uh, live golf and lots of broadcasting scenarios going on right now. Um, so yeah, tons to discuss. Yeah. We're going to have a very extensive post us open segment of the show tonight to get into all that i mean we, we got a big announcements today one was that's that brooks kepka has joined the live tour overseas and the second is or at least the second one that i that was relayed to us by mike was that the nick faldo has announced his more or less retirement from full-time broadcasting um um at the at, at the end of i think you said the wyndham so uh, that's sad for me. I, I thought he, he's been pretty good for a long time. And uh, we'll get into that later. But let's get to the tournament itself and back to Mike. You know, uh, Matt Fitzpatrick gets his first major, a tremendous win. And um, really a lot to, to cover here, a lot to unpack. And certainly in the final round, mo- more of the same. I mean, there are just so many, much opportunity for everybody. It looked like Scheffler might have even taken it at one point, but he came up short just at the very end. But let's get your thoughts on, on uh, Fitzpatrick and what he's done leading up to this moment. Well, it's a good example of sometimes if you want to take your career as a golfer to the next level, you need to be willing to take on a little bit of risk. Now, Matt Fitzpatrick had won seven times on the European Tour. He's been on a couple of Ryder Cup teams, hasn't done much, has a U.S. amateur. And, you know, he had himself in a position where he's made a nice living playing golf and he was going to continue to make a nice living playing golf, even if he didn't get, you know, markedly better. But he knew that um, he didn't hit the ball far enough and that at big events, especially, and if you look at just the way the modern game is gone, that you need to be able to put it out there a little bit. Otherwise you're just, you're going to be outgunned. So what did he do? He made some changes, I guess, worked on some strength stuff, some swing stuff, and he got himself enough extra distance where he's not, um, he's not giving up so much now that he puts himself at a big disadvantage. So this year, his ball striking stats have been great. I think he was leading the, uh, tour or close to leading the tour in uh, strokes gained uh, T to green. So he had a good short game to begin with. So, you know, he was building some momentum. Uh, John mentioned it, that he's basically been picking them all the time, sort of waiting for this to happen. I picked them last week, of course. And uh, what did he do? Well, you know, he, he hit the ball great. He showed a lot of resolve and, one of the things that made this final round so good was that, um, you know, in, in some uh, some majors, someone will fade and then some guy will come on and it just you don't see like the back and forth, like someone starts to fade, they're done and someone comes up and they have the tournament. But, but with this, we had like sort of three distinct acts go on. Right. So beginning of the final round, you have Fitzpatrick, Zalatoris, tied four under you have Scheffler at two under Rory's at one under I think Damon was at two under. a couple guys were at two under Rom was at a uh, three under and then um Scheffler comes out really hot as he did uh on Saturday too shoots 31 on his front nine and gets to minus six and at one point during the middle of the front nine 
uh, Fitzpatrick had come out. He had made a birdie. Um, Zalatoris came out cold, made two bogeys. So we're sitting there in the middle of the front nine. Scheffler's at minus six. Fitzpatrick's at minus five. And Zalatoris is already all, all the way down at minus two with a bunch of other people. And you're thinking, all right, maybe he's out of it. But what happens? Well, um, Zalatoris shows some good resolve. He birdies six and birdies seven, just absolutely stuffing shots, gets himself to minus four. Uh, Fitzpatrick is able to hit the, and here's an example of where that added length is a big deal. He's able to hit, uh, what did he hit? He's able to hit the fifth green with, he drives the fifth green, two putts for birdie, gets him to minus six. Now he does make a, a bogey on six, but then he hits eight, which is a 640 yard par five in two, which he would have had no chance of doing last year. And he's able to get a birdie to get to minus six. So he's tied and Zalatoris is making up ground. Then Scheffler has problems at 10 and 11 again. So he drops down to minus four. And then here's where like the, the second act comes where it looks like it's Zalatoris is a tournament. Zalatoris is like the only guy in the final round who on 11, that drop shot part three, the short one actually hits like a full standard high up in the air shot. Everyone had been hitting flighted down shots and playing it safe, which you kind of have to do because there's nowhere to miss there. Um, so he birdies that. And at that point, uh, Fitzpatrick three putts that he had made a bogey. And I think uh, 10 or I think nine actually. So he has a two shot lead, but then Fitzpatrick sinks that long putt on 13. Um, he uh, birdies 15. That gets him to minus six. And Zalatoris had made a bogey on um, 15 as well. So he's two behind. He's able to birdie 17 to get to one behind. And of course he um, just misses that birdie putt on 18 and is unable to get to minus six. And then of course the drama on the 18th hole, which was uh, Fitzpatrick pulls out a fairway wood, but hooks it left and he's in a bunker. And from the way it looked on the television uh, angle, the first one that we saw it sort of looked like his shot was going to be blocked out by that. Uh, like the bunker has a, a, a grass Island in it and it looks like he's going to be blocked out by that, but then they come back and you see that he actually does have a clean angle. So he hits a great shot. He's able to hit a two putt, no problem. And he, uh, he's able to win his uh, first major, a U.S. open at the same course where he won the um, U S amateur. So, I just think, you know, he had made the changes that he needed to make to really compete at this level. And I think he came in here with a lot of confidence thinking, you know, I am the only guy who's ever won anything of note at this place. I know how to get around here. I know how to score. I know how to win here. I can do this. And I think he just had a great mindset. He was mentally strong the entire day. And just look, he came into the final round tied for the lead and he hit 17 greens at a U.S. Open. If you do that, you're going to win more than 90 percent of the time. So uh, hands off, hats off to Matt Fitzpatrick. It was a, a tremendous effort. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that shot you mentioned from the bunker on 18 was really impressive. Um, yeah, I guess I didn't really think, you know, I was definitely worried. I didn't know if you would clear that little patch that you mentioned, that the little green that little green uh, puff of, of grass, but it looked like it was just enough. Yeah, so like the, the line of sight looked good too. So uh, let's go to John. Let's get your thoughts on Fitzpat Fitzpatrick's win and his journey to the win. 
Yeah, what a great tournament. Um, I don't know if we'll get to the course after, but they set that up perfectly where, you know, good play was rewarded. It wasn't one of these U.S. Opens that we've seen in the past where it's basically like who can hang on to, to the end of it and, like, you know, make a scratch out a couple pars and you win the tournament at, like, plus four or something. Like, this was – like, if you hit good shots – you could make birdies on these holes. But if you didn't, like, you were screwed, which it, you, sh- you should be at a U.S. Open. So I thought they did a great job with the course. I love the mix of um, short par fours, a couple par fives you could take advantage of, and then some really tough par fours that you had to really, you know, play safe and just try to get your par and go on to the next hole. Um, so that was the first thing. I love the course. I think they definitely should bring the U.S. Open back there again. Um, as far as Fitzpatrick, like we've talked about him – you know, numerous times when we've we've done our golf shows, uh, T to green. I like Mike said it. He's number one. I, I think even in just strokes gained overall, in, you know, driving approach, short game putting. I, I want to say he's number one on the tour this year. Or got to be in the top five. Like he, he's a very very well rounded player, and that added distance really um, has paid off for him in huge dividends, as we can see. Um, he's always been an accurate player. Uh, always good with the short game and uh, adding that distance really has taken his game to the next level. And as you could see, just from his results this year, um, the one thing I was concerned about with him heading to the final round is we saw this last month at the PGA um, and a couple other times, really, when he's been in contention this year, he just kind of has faded a little bit. He's, he's kind of lost his swing. He's, he he's been, had been hitting shots kind of like he did on 18 on Sunday, like those hooks to the left. Um, I remember seeing that at the Canadian Open last week. He had a couple of those holes uh, where it kind of took him out of contention. And you, you were, I was a little, I, as someone who had obviously was backing Zal Torres, I was very comfortable with the pairing of him and Fitzpatrick versus, say, if it was going to be him and Rom before Rom, you know, messed up the 18th on Saturday. But uh, what a what a ball striking performance! Um, 17 greens in regulation. I mean, that is just phenomenal play. And um, I, the, I believe the one he missed. I don't remember the hole, but I think he bogeyed it. I don't think he got up and down. And then the other only other bogey he made was on the 11th, that short little par three when he three-putted. Um, you know, and every time he got in trouble off the tee, he was able to navigate it. He, he did get lucky, though, on the 15th, where uh, he blasted it so far to the right that he was in, like, the walk with the grass that was trampled down by the spectators. And that gave him a huge advantage on that hole over Zalatoris, who – wasn't really off by that much, but as you see at the U.S. Open, like if you're off the fairway by a couple of yards, like you're you're screwed. Like the rough is so deep, like you really can't do much of anything with it. And it's just, you know, you're spinning a roulette wheel to see if you're going to get a good lie, and you know you really couldn't do anything with it. it leads to a bogey, and that ends up being the difference. Um, but yeah, I mean, what else can you say? And then on the 18th, uh, you know, again gets a little lucky break that he's not like right behind that little tuft of of grass in the bunker, so he's able to hit the perfect cut shot um, to get on the green and uh, he dodges Will, Will's putt, which I thought was going in for sure. And it just, just like scraped over the edge of the hole. I'm like, Oh my God, what a good putt. I think mean, maybe we can talk about him after, but what a putting performance from Will Zalatoris. Um, but I mean, we'll get to him with the field, but um, yeah, Fitzpatrick, you know, he's, he's, he seems like a really good guy too. I mean, I don't know. want to be like a, stereotypical like all Englishmen like they just like these jolly like you know <laughs> you know go, you know uh just happy guys and like he, he seems like a real good guy so I, I was glad he won um and it was a tremendous final round so 
you know, a great performance from, from Fitzpatrick and certainly he had been leading up to this for a while. So can't say that, you know, I don't think either of us would say that we're surprised that he won this tournament. I agree with that. Like you said, he's been having, he's having a good year as well. It's Al Torres for that matter is too. I mean, Scheffler is, so not surprising that those three were the ones at the top, at the, at the top of the leaderboard at the end of the day. And, um, you know, you look at the what's the other folks who are pretty close behind, you know, Rory McIlroy. You know, he really had. A, I, I have to say, I think he had a good tournament. It was just a bad day. I think he just had one bad day. Mike can speak better on that than I can, but um, you know, it was a very good field. Like I, I just think it really bore out. Like most of the folks who we thought were going to make a splash really did, and even Rom. You know, generally when someone is defending a title and a major. They're not going to end up this close in the final round. So I have to give him credit, even though he did have a disappointing final round himself. But uh, he did do well for himself overall. So let's go back to Mike. Let's talk about some of these other contenders who were near the top of the leaderboard and any other folks you wanted to mention uh, from the week's action. I mean, just a lot of juice. I just think it was great from the beginning to end, but particularly on Sunday. Really good stuff. Yeah, well, I guess we'll start with Rory because besides him just being who he is and having the four majors before he was 25, and now, of course, we have the storyline of he hasn't won in eight years, that there's been this additional storyline because he's been, like, along with Justin Thomas somewhat, the most outspoken anti-Live uh, Tour uh, player out there. So Liv launches last week, and what does he do? He shoots 62 in a final round, wins the Canadian Open, defeating Justin Thomas in just one of the uh, one of the better regular like season events that you'll see. So it's it's almost like we have this perfect storyline written out. If Rory wins, what a great thing would it be for golf? And I think everyone was pulling for him. Look, he played well enough the first two rounds, but he just absolutely did not have it on Saturday. Now he putted well enough on Saturday to like keep it at a 73 or 74, whatever it was. But um, he put himself in a position where he was probably wasn't completely out of it going in, but three shots. And what happened was once it rained in the morning and softened the course up a little bit, you knew that, all right, some of the guys here, you're not going to see like 74, 75s. People are going to shoot around even par, maybe a couple under. And then once, yeah, and he would have known that. He would have gone out. He would have seen that it rained and that it's softer. So at that point, you know that you have to sort of fire at pins and you got to shoot a low score. And, you know, he had some good holes, but he just, he wasn't able to play mistake-free golf. He just backed every birdie up on, um, on Sunday with a bogey. So that's not going to get it done, but where he's going to regret this tournament specifically is that he led the field in strokes gained putting and he did not win. And I think, and uh, don't quote me on this. I might be wrong, but I think that anytime Rory has flat out outright led a, an event in stroke game putting he's won. So for him to do that, when he's, historically traditionally and currently not a great putter although I mean, he's a little bit better now than he was a couple of years ago um yeah it's a missed opportunity and the uh the course to some extent nullified a little bit of advantage off the tee uh like the data golf account that does the live strokes gain thing they do a thing where they look at like dispersion of strokes gained off the tee 
and they were saying that this event had a low dispersion of it. it, it they said a couple holes, it's like it, they force you to hit to one area. So like an advantage off the tee does not accentuate itself as much um, at the country club as it would in a normal tour event. And I would probably guess that that would be true for most U.S. Opens too, just because of the nature of it. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, he's really he almost has to win this open championship coming up now. Like he can get in a bad draw and if he gets in a bad draw, he won't win. And then it's, then it's sort of like, all right, well, what could you do? But it seems like he's a step closer than he has been in the last few years, but he just needs to get over this hurdle. And St. Andrews, he says it's his favorite course in the world. And, you know, he would have had a very good chance to win in 2010 if he wasn't in a gale when Ustazen wasn't. So, We'll see what happens. Uh, he'll probably be the betting favorite going into that. I don't think I'm going to touch him just because he's burned me too many times, but um, <laughs> we'll, we'll see what he does. Anyone else notable to talk about? Um, yeah, the Rom thing is surprising because he's leading the tournament outright. And uh, I actually wrote down how bad it was. Leading after 53 holes, he plays the next 19 holes six over. Mm. So something went wrong with him and he just went off the tracks. Now only a few people in history have ever uh, successfully defended the U S open. So you can't really get on him for that. Um, but the way in which it happened was a little bit surprising. He just didn't have it on Sunday for whatever reason. Scheffler comes up a little bit short in his bid to win a, um, his bid to win a second major this year. But in the process though, he is now with all these events left. He is now the all time leader in terms of single season money won in the PGA tour history already. And we're only in June. So, uh, I mean, a lot of that has to do with how much prize money is now and whatnot, but still a somewhat notable achievement. Cool. So but it's interesting though. It's like the 11th hole was really that guy's undoing. It's a 130 yard par three. He double bogeyed it on Saturday and he bogeyed it on Sunday. So that's, that's three shots right there on a hole that you figure you'll play even par. And without that, he's eight under and he wins. So, um, but he, he's sort of proving that, you know, this run up to the masters and whatnot was not like a hot fluke or anything like that. He, he's getting it ramped up again. Is anyone else that was really close up? Uh, Sam Burns did not have it at all on Sunday either. Uh, he's a guy who sort of has quietly made his way into the top 10 of the world golf ranking. So I still want to see a little bit more from him on like bigger stages before I say, okay, you're legit. Like he, I, I don't mean to necessarily compare him to Jimmy Walker in terms of what they're like as players and not, but it does almost remind me of it in that Jimmy Walker was able to sort of backdoor his way into the top 10 and the top, uh, the top of the FedEx cup standings, mostly by winning um, lower ebb events, but winning, winning them multiple times and winning multiple times a year. So that's kind of what Sam Burns has done. Jimmy Walker capped it off by winning a PGA championship right before his career went down the drain. So Sam Burns much younger than Jimmy Walker was. So um, we'll see. But he, he's, he has to sort of get it done in a bigger name event. Zalatoris, um, yeah, look, what can you say? The guy's ball striking is unbelievable. The putting is just, it's so weird to watch. But I'll say this in his defense. Bernhard Longer 
was constantly changing the way he putted with all these weird grips and everything throughout his entire career, basically until he got to the champion store and he won the masters twice. So like someone like Zalatoris, it has happened where you're just like, what is he doing trying to putt? Like longer did it. And it worked for him. So I think Zalator is a good enough ball striker that he will break through. But I almost think that Zalatoris would be very it would do a lot for him if he won a regular event, just so he can say, Okay, I I I have done it. I know what the feeling's like. Just just so he can process the feeling, just so he's done it once. So it's a little bit it would be a little bit less of a step to win your first professional event um at a major championship. But uh I, even though he has a number of close calls, I wouldn't be dissuaded about his future or think that it's necessarily going to deter him at this point. I don't think it's built up enough scar tissue yet. No, I don't think so. He's so young. So I, I'm with you on that. Um, very good synopsis, though. Thank you very much for the rundown, Mike. And now let's go to John. Let's get your thoughts on the rest of the field. As we mentioned, a lot of stories here from this weekend. So uh, let's give it to you. Yeah, you had a great mix of uh, players on Sunday, you, you know, you had the two, two players who were tied for the lead in Fitzpatrick and Zal Torres, who had, you know, two of the better players on tour, probably the two best players on tour have not won on tour. You had the elite superstars with Rom and Scheffler and McElroy. You had kind of your, um, your underdogs that were kind of in and out of the mix. You had Hadwin and McCarthy, um, popped in there for a little bit. Uh, Keegan Bradley was like the local hero. Um, you know, he compared it to like playing for the Red Sox or the Patriots. And I regret not like picking him for any of the stuff for last week. Cause he had been playing, he's been playing some good golf and you knew this was like his, you know, like, this was like the major of all majors for him. And he showed up actually, like, I think on Sunday he was playing with Rom and he beat him by like four shots. Like that would have been a good bet to take. I, I regret not getting in on that one. Um, but in any event, yeah, I mean, you know, Mike summed things up pretty nicely. Um, you know, McElroy, he's, he's, he's very close. And as you could see it last week in Canada, I mean, he was just so on his game. I mean, once he's hitting his wedges like that and he, it's just the whole package, like he drives it long and straight wedges it to five feet and he, you know, he drills the putt and, you know, he, he it's just, it's really fascinating to watch when he, when he's on his game and he just, just was just a little off this week. Um, yeah, the Saturday round killed him. Uh, like every hole they showed him, it's like, here's McElroy, 10 feet for par. He's making it. And he still shot what, three over. Um, so that was the, the round that really took him out of contention for sure. But um, yeah, he'll be the favorite next next month at St. Andrews. Uh, and I believe he, he has like, he has one of the course records there. I, I, if I'm not mistaken. I think he had like a 60 something there, one, 64 maybe. I'd have to check on that. But I feel like he had like a really low round there uh, one of these years. Um, John, I'll quickly interject. He did shoot 63 in the opening round of the uh, 2010 British Open. I'm not sure if that is the course record, though, because they they play that Dunhill links there every right. year and it's not set up as hard. But it's probably the like British Open tournament record. Yeah, that's what. Yeah, that's what I figured. OK, good to confirm. Um, so as far as the other guys, yeah, Scheffler, definitely not a fluke. Uh, his run up to these uh, or his just amazing play this year. I mean, he could have, you know, he could have had, he could have six or seven wins right now. I mean, he lost in the playoff to Sam Burns, the colonial. And then obviously this tournament, he just, there's just those, those 10 through 13 just destroyed this guy on the weekend. Um, and Mike is right. That little part three, like legit, you could take me and Mike out from the crowd and give us a wedge and we might be able to hit the green and make par. 
Uh, and this guy, he, he's like, he's I'm, I'm serious, Dave. It's, it's like it's a wedge shot. Like other than the pressure of hitting a wedge shot in the U.S. Open, it's literally just hitting a wedge shot. Like I think we could we could handle it. Um, but just it just you know it got the best of him, and um, you know that was that was his undoing. But man, he his his approach game is just so solid, especially with his long irons, and he, he's got that funky footwork he does like when he swings but it, it you know what you can't can't deny what it's working for him i mean he's the number one player in the world right now for a reason and um you know no reason to see why he wouldn't you know keep this going for the rest of the year for sure um a couple other guys uh, well, I'll, i guess i'll mention colin morikawa who um had not really been playing well lately and then you know he gets off to uh the 36 hole lead five under and just has a miserable round on saturday um, he's, he's known typically for hitting a cut shot and all of a sudden he has been hitting like little draws for, if you don't, I mean, I think if you, you know golf, you're watching this show or listening to the show, but for the lay person, a cut shot is one that goes slightly from left to right with your ball flight. And a draw shot is one that goes slightly from right to left. And he's, he, his ball flight basically flipped without him not even doing anything. And that's a concern because you know, you can't, you know, plan and execute your shots when you don't know where it's going, with, you know, when you're swinging. Um, so that was kind of a, you know, it's a tough, tough spot for him, but he was able to uh, overcome that on Saturday. And, you know, he had a nice round. I don't think he was really ever in contention to win. It's the same thing with Matsuyama. I do feel that, like, if he'd gotten to four under, maybe that would have put a little pressure on the guys in front of him. Um, but you know, that was a great round too. I mean, bogey free 65 on the last day of the U S open. I mean, that was just tremendous. Um, so yeah, those are two guys that kind of eke their way back into the top five on Sunday. Um, and yeah, and then I'll, I'll mention Zal Torres. I mean, you know, this guy, he's, he's just phenomenal. Uh, you can't say enough about the way he hits the ball. It, the one miss that he does have is he, um, he hits it to the right with his driver. And you could see that got him in trouble on some holes uh, on the 13th hole. Uh, he did end up saving par on that when he made a nice, a nice uh, up and down. But I think on 12, he went to the right on 13. He went to the right. And then again on 15, which was the bogey that ended up leaving him one shot behind. He went to the right. And one of the only astute things Azinger said all week, and it was probably fed to him was how he was like 200th uh, Zal Torres. That is was like 200th in, like right rough tendencies or something like that, like one of the worst on tour. And it, it came back to bite him uh, for this, uh, you know, that back nine. But overall, I mean, the, the guy's got just tremendous amount of talent and, and game. And, um, you know, his putting has improved tenfold from what it was. It's, it's interesting because, like, you know, if you're going to tell me, like, you're, you need to shoot a 24 under to win, like, I'm not going to take Will Zalatoris. Because he, I just don't think he's that kind of player who's just going to rack up birdies after birdie. Um, because his putter can go cold, but at a tournament like this, when it's all about keeping it in play, hitting your your irons crisp and on the green, uh, you know he's he's tremendous. Which is why, like, I like him at a PGA or a U.S. Open. We'll see about next month at St. Andrews. You know, we've talked about this before. St. Andrews now, like, correct me if I'm wrong. St. Andrews now is basically the same course that it was 200 years ago, and you know you don't like like there's numerous par fours that can be driven the green they're going to hit the green on the on the par four like there's numerous par fours out of like 350 yards and it's just outdated so if there's no wind this is going to be a complete birdie fest and i don't know if i like sal Torres in that kind of event so i think i'm going to get off uh for this i i shouldn't say that i'll probably make a small bet just because if he wins and i don't bet him on this one i'm going to like jump off the nearest bridge but in terms of like other stuff <laughs> that like i 
like for our, our pool that we do or for like DraftKings and stuff like that, I'm probably not going to include Zalatoris. Um, but yeah, so it was a, a great field. Uh, they, like I said, a really nice mix of players, although, you know, you didn't see some guys until like, you know, the 16th hole on Sunday. It's, oh, by the way, he's two under. He's got a chance to win the U.S. Open. But <laughs> in any event, yeah, it was a, it was a tremendous, uh, tremendous leaderboard heading into Sunday, and, and it definitely delivered. Well, thank you very again for the rundown. Another great comprehensive rundown, John. I appreciate you for that. Um, that's a common problem with national broadcasts, so they tend to just leave out a whole lot of the field and just focus on like three or four players. And then it's like, you know, maybe you should look at this guy once in a while. Anyway, Mike, let's go back to you. Um, we'll talk now about the media coverage. And I know you all wanted to talk about this tonight. There's much to discuss. So, Mike, I'll give you the floor. Yeah, sure. Let's get into it because the coverage of this event was a disaster. Um, I'll start out on, well, we can start out with the general format of how it worked, which was the, the very beginning of the round was on Peacock, and then it went to USA, and then it went to NBC, and then it either went back to USA or right back to Peacock, and then ended on Peacock. So you're having to move five times during the course of the day. That's too much. It's too much. And then here's what really, really bothered me. I'm watching Thursday. And I, I was going to get up at the beginning watching Peacock, but the, I woke up and I was like, you know what? I'm going to sleep for another two hours. Screw it. So I do that and I get up in time to uh, like throw on, all right, Rory's off early. It's on USA. Now let's turn on USA. So I go and I watch the golf coverage and now Rory's in the mix and they're missing so many of his shots and they're missing so many shots from like other bigger name players. And they're like showing random guys and they're not showing a lot of golf and they're having all these pointless stories about crap that no one really cares about. And, and, and I figured out what they were doing. They were showing Rory on featured coverage on Peacock. And what they were trying to do is they were trying to show you so little of him that you would go over to Peacock, have to button. It wasn't on free Peacock, which most of the seasons of the office are, for Christ's sake. Not free. You have to sign up for it. So that you would sign up and pay the five bucks and watch him play. Now, one, that's bullshit to begin with. You have this huge media coverage, this huge media contract. It's one of its like the, the maybe the premier golf event of the year. And it, what makes it even more egregious is that NBC is paying nothing to broadcast this because Fox had the 10 year U S open contract and they wanted out of it. So NBC got it for about 30 cents on the dollar. Now look, uh, it's 2022. I accept the fact that we're going to have to go to streaming stuff to watch some stuff. Okay. That, that's fine. Um, but you cannot then couple that with, okay, we're going to have it on streaming for a couple hours and we're going to go to TV. You cannot move to TV and basically torpedo the TV coverage to try to get people to buy the streaming stuff. That's bullshit. I, I come on. And that, that is like, I, I always talk about end stage capitalism and I, I won't get into a huge soak here, but. My, here's my point. They figured out how to monetize bullshit. And that's what they're doing here. All right, we're going to give you a crap coverage, crap this, crap that. And uh, 
what you're going to do is you're just going to pay five bucks to watch the uh, featured groups. Come on. That's nonsense. That's a joke. We shouldn't be subjected to that. Not with uh, how much they can charge advertisers to run commercials during this and stuff. And then just, just in general, what they, like what they did Saturday, people were actually counting. It was like commercial three golf shots, commercial. And that was happening constantly. You've got to show more than three golf shots. What are you doing? So just between the blatant attempt to try to push people's hands towards buying Peacock early on, not showing enough golf on Saturday, and then you have Jimmy Roberts on NBC being like, guys, guys, there's 10 people in contention. What are we supposed to do? I don't know. Show more than three shots between commercial breaks, and you might be able to cover them all. That's not an insurmountable amount of people. And they should have enough television cameras there. I, I assume they do. So just not enough coverage at all. And then <laughs> Azinger, just to show you how clueless he is, it's Scheffler teeing off on six, which is a 180-yard par three. And Azinger's like, oh, he has an iron. He's laying up here. And then like a minute later, you can see on the shot, you see a, a green off in the distance. It's obvious it's a par three. So I don't know if he's on Quaaludes or something, but uh, he's just, he's completely lost. He, he just offers up like no, he offers up like no technical analysis of what people are doing, what's throwing them off. It's all just, oh, it's a lot of pressure here. He's really going to be in the pressure cooker next to, it's like, he, he adds nothing to the broadcast. He really, it, it, I, I don't get it. I don't know why they're so obsessed with him. We're getting to the point where most of the people who remember him, and he wasn't really that great of a player anyway, are like getting past the point where, well, let's just say they would be fired from WFAN very quickly under the uh, Spike Eskin rule. So <laughs> hopefully he's gone soon. But of course now Faldo's gone and Azinger's still around. So oh boy. Eh, the world continues to spiral down the toilet. So yeah, not uh, <laughs> like very using that to illustrate this. Yeah. <laughs> A, a, a very bad week for NBC. Probably yeah. the worst week of major coverage I can remember wow. since like Fox's debut with the U.S. Open when they didn't know how to like properly frame shots into the green. You would just see a ball and a patch of green. You'd have no idea where it was in relation to the hole. You got to <laughs> go back to that to top this. This was a disaster, and they they need to improve. That's really saying something, Mike. If you're talking, if you're if you're putting them in the conversation with Fox's first U.S. Open. That's rough. Now, I wasn't watching as much of it as you were on Saturday, so I will take your word for it on that. Um, as for Azinger, I mean, it's pretty much everything that we've we've known about him forever. Um, I don't want to get into the conversation of how comparing him to Mark Jackson in the NBA, but literally it's the same thing. It's the same shit. Like, he's so useless. I, I, I just can't believe that this is like a major comp you know, coverage and they're using that guy. It's just ridiculous. Mike, isn't it funny about – the funny thing, though – is you were saying that because the NBC had these all these other guys, it would diffuse his uselessness. It sounds like he took a little bit, had a little bit more more uh, say in this particular broadcast. Is that is that an interesting observation for you? Uh, it did feel to me like uh, it was less of because I almost feel like Azinger tried to sort of emulate what Johnny Miller would do, which was it was almost like Miller was having a running conversation with Gary Koch and Roger Maltby throughout the whole broadcast. And as a result, you get like a lot of them, and it just it wasn't as much of that this week. So. Yeah, and I noticed that too. Like I, I did hear a lot more of his nonsense than I was used to. So it's very unfortunate, very unfortunate. And and uh, 
So for those who are kind of more casual golf fans, if you're like, well, what is, what do you mean by like he's he's not useful and like blah blah blah? Go watch an NBA Finals telecast and you'll get the same feel. Because like I I just like watching those in like back to back days, like just solidified everything I thought about both guys. Like it just it's just it's like the same thing. So let's go back to John. Let's get your thoughts on media coverage. I completely agree. This is like one of the worst broadcasts I've seen in so long. And it honestly surprising because I mean, we know Azinger is, is, is tough to take. I mean, we've yeah. known that like what, just watching the NBC events in Florida all these years, but just in general, it was just miserable. Um, I wrote down a couple of things and I, I, one thing I did write down was what Mike had said about Scheffler teeing off on the sixth hole. And then he's like, Oh, my bad, my bad. It's a, it's a par three. It's like, dude, like you're the lead analyst at NBC. Like, you, how do you not know what hole he's teeing off on? Like, I, I just, it, it just, it, it, it's, I don't know what's going on. And then later on in, in the coverage, so it was the most bizarre thing I, I think I've ever heard on a golf broadcast. So they go to Denny McCarthy on the 17th hole, and he's got like 100 yards in, and he's at two under or three under or whatever he was. I mean, he's got a, you know, it, it would take a lot for him to get to, to win the tournament at this point. And they go to him hitting the shot, and Azinger is just, he just, he says it like four times. Well, what if he makes this? What if he makes this? You know, he could make the shot. You know, he really could make this. And I'm just thinking to myself, you could pull like some random drunk guy from the crowd to say that in, in the in the in the booth. Like, what is this guy talking about? He the the guy's a hundred yards away from the hole. I'm granted he's a the a professional golfer, but how many holeouts during the week do you see? Maybe three, four. I mean. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Like there was no analysis or commentary about the type of shot he needed to hit or, you know, what, you know, what spinning he needed to put on the ball because there's like all kinds of slopes around the hole. It was maybe he'll make this. How, how, how would he, if he makes this shot here, like I could not believe what I was hearing. Like it was just, it was just so bizarre. And like, I, I've never heard anything like that. Um, another thing, not, not shooting Azinger himself, but um, there was one hole on the front nine where Scheffler birdied to take the lead. And they updated the little cryon screen in the bottom right. And then I think it was Gary Coke said, oh, you see Scheffler birdie and just took the lead. We'll show it to you in a second. Like, I, I'm like, oh, my God, they never do that. Like, it's always this just happened a minute ago or let's or they don't even tee it, you know, uh, tip it off. They go, let's go to Scheffler on the on the fifth green or whatever. And, you know, if you're following the, the, the leaderboard on your phone or your computer or whatever, you'll, you know, he made it. But. They'll never tip it off. I had never heard that before. Let's go to Sheffield. You know, you see Sheffield trick the lead. We'll show it to you in a minute. Like, I could not believe I heard that. That I, that's like, I, I've never heard that in a golf broadcast before when like they're the leader of the tournament just made a birdie and they're going to, they're going to do that. Yeah. There's way too many essays. You know, I mean, if I think I've, if you wrote down the number of times that they said uh, Matt Fitzpatrick won the U S amateur there in 2013, um, the number of times they mentioned Francis Wimet's house was behind this, the road on whatever hole that was, I think you, you could retire right now because it was just every every you know every ten minutes they were saying that. Um, and then the, one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen on the 15th tee, in between two trees, they had the audacity to put up a fucking field field goal like the guys were kicking a football with their drive. Like, you know, I, I couldn't believe it. And yeah, Dave, they've had the goalposts. They had the goalposts, and like, like, oh yeah, like you, 
like you couldn't see that they needed a hit between the two trees. Like they needed to add a goal post <laughs> That's so to enhance the point. And the worst part about it is Will Zalatoris fucking nails it through the middle of the goal post and he's in the rough. Like there was no point to it. Like it was just the stupidest thing I think I've ever seen. Like this was such a bad broadcast. I, I can't even get, I can't even describe any more than what I just did. I mean, there, I'm sure there was other stuff that I, I didn't mention, but this was just so bad. And yeah, the, the channel hopping was ridiculous. I actually had paid for Peacock uh, to the 4.99, but it was for something else I wanted to watch. You know, I was going to cancel like in a month, so I had it anyway. But I did not realize that the coverage that I was watching, I didn't realize it was the Peacock Premium, so I just kind of stumbled into it. But yeah, that is bullshit. That they're charging you 4.99 to watch what two hours of golf like that that is just stupid so you know we'll see what happens next month because the nbc's got the open championship again so um i don't know maybe they'll they'll use the golf i remember them using golf channel basically like all day last year for the open so maybe maybe just the u.s open contract was different because they're inheriting it from fox like like you guys were saying so who knows? Maybe maybe the the open will be will be better, and we'll just go straight from Golf Channel to NBC. So we can only hope. But man, this was a complete train wreck this week. Yeah, but I would love to investigate the nuances of what what that arranged broadcast agreement was because it shocked me that there was no Golf Channel coverage at all. Like I'm just a little confused about that, Mike. Is there some reason for that? I, I would guess that it has to do with golf channel is normally on like you need to get a sports package to get it. Uh, USA would be standard cable. And I guess it's just something that if they for US Open on during like afternoon hours that they want it on a channel or NBC wants it on a channel where it reaches more people, they can charge more for uh, advertising fees and whatnot. So I think it's just a, it's a matter of economics. And honestly, I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad decision, especially because mm-hmm. they were showing like, uh, I think two other things on golf channel at the time too. There was a, an LPGA event where like all the top players were there. So, you know, I guess if there's other golf going on, it does make sense to throw a major championship on like a more widely available channel, especially like if you, if you're like a hotel or something, they're not necessarily going to have golf channel in the room. So they are going to have USA. So I I think it's just stuff like that. Okay. Well, let's uh, talk about the course then as we segue out of our coverage of this. Uh, Dave. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Just before we move on to that, I do want to bring this up because, you know, we don't do recaps of every tournament. But since we were talking about terrible uh, announcers and Azinger and uh, Dottie Pepper last week had maybe her worst moment out of a lot of really bad moments. So McElroy has the lead and he has like a four footer for par. And Dottie's like, you know, this isn't going to move at all. It's straight in. And he hits the and it just goes snapping left and misses the hole completely and then Dottie tried to say that he hit it off he hit it off the toe and that caused the putt to go snapping left but then they show the replay it's completely squared face and it just went sliding off the left so she just she didn't know what the putt was going to do and she just made something up and then when it when it didn't happen she just lied and came up with an excuse (laughs) like just admit you got it wrong or don't say anything don't compound the error John, 
I, I didn't hear that. I, I don't. I was watching the, that tournament last week, but I, I missed that gem. But I'm certainly not surprised. But I would say I would compare Azinger to Booger McFarland, honestly. They just <laughs> talk and talk and talk, and they add literally nothing. Yes. Like he just he just talks and doesn't. It doesn't adds no value to the broadcast. None. Yeah. I mean, I, that's another good comp because I I I think the common the common thread between all these guys. I mentioned Mark Jackson earlier. Uh, they say so much and not give you any information. Like they just, they talk, but they they provide zero. They they are zeros. Like it's just like it's just like come on. Like at least be funny. Like be interesting. Like they're not interesting. They don't have anything to add to the broadcast, and that's just such a pain when you have to deal with people like that. All like the time. how hard is it to maybe bring in? Maybe not even bring someone in, but like have someone on the team that has an understanding of like. You know, new age stats and not even new age stats, but like we talk about it here on the show, like strokes gained approach and strokes gained putting and all these kind of things that could be really useful when analyzing a player and how they're doing and why they're doing well or why they're doing poorly and how, you know, how they're going to play certain holes. Even if you don't know about it yourself, like bring somebody in to, um, you know, teach you about that or, or feed you information with that. Like yeah. it, it's literally nothing with him, but just like, you know, just generic terms and like feeling, and it's just it's really uh, for someone who under like understands golf and statistics, it's really off-putting. Maybe for the casual fan, people like that. I mean, CBS does a good job getting the statistics and stuff into the mix. They mix, they bring um, Amanda on there, and they show the the board when they're doing interviews. And I got this. Oh yeah, you've been improving on your strokes gain putting this year. Like, tell me about how you're how you're doing that. Like, they they get it. Like, NBC completely has no clue. Um, and, you know, it, God forbid you were going to bring like betting stuff into the mix too. That, that's the next level, but like they can't even get the, the, the stroke gained like approach and new age stats, right? It's just, it's infuriating. Yeah, it really is. It really is. It's, it's really disappointing that, you know, a big company like NBC can't get that together. Um, I'm not really sure what their motivation is there. I mean, you know, it's so interesting. You bring up the Peacock coverage too, because that, that whole big, you know, like Peacock has a baseball package right now. But you have to pay the five dollars a month to get it, and like, I'm not paying five dollars for one game. Like, kiss my ass. Like, I'm not doing that. So, uh, anyway, Mike, uh, let's get into some other related stuff with the tournament. But particularly, we want to get into the course. And feel free to comment more on Peacock if you want. But yeah, the course was really set up really nicely. I thought it was a really, really fun watch. Brookline, Massachusetts, was a good spot. So, um, uh, let's let's give it to you for your thoughts on the course. So obviously a ton of history at this place. Now I will go over it briefly, even though it was mentioned a million times in the uh, broadcast, but in case people had it on mute or whatever, which was 1913 Francis Wimet uh, beats Harry Varden and Ted Ray, who were the uh, two leading golf professionals at the time. And we met at the time as a 20 year old amateur and it sort of kicks off American golf inspires a lot of people to play like uh, Bobby Jones, Gene Sarazen specifically like mentioned that as a, a big influencing moment. Um, they had a 63 U S open there. They had the 88 U S open there, but they had not had a major championship at this place in 34 years. It's actually pretty surprising. And of course the 99 Ryder cup, so that was the last big event they had there was the Ryder Cup. And, um, you know, like many courses of that age and what happened, uh, 
green sizes got reduced, trees grew, and everything kind of got choked in a little bit. So they brought Gil Hansen, sort of pulled the course back a little bit and sort of made a modern version of what it was. And I guess based off that, the U.S. Open was like, all right, yeah, we'll, we'll go back here. But I'll say this, though. They got to go back here, like, within the next 10 years. And it wouldn't surprise me if they do. Um, like, 2027 is open, and I think 2031 is open. There's rumors that 2027 they're going to give to Wingfoot because Wingfoot wasn't able to have any people there in 2020 so that they'll go, like, right back there as a, hey, we're making this up to you. So that's probably where 2027 is going to go. But I would think, like, 31 will probably go to Oakland Hills now that they did a huge renovation on it. But I would think like 2033 is open. So that's 11 years. I would think they will be in either 31 or 33, maybe I, 27 is too close, but uh, it, it was just, it was such a pure test. Like John got on to, into this. It wasn't unfair at all, but you know what? It challenged you to hit certain shots and you had to pull them off and if you didn't pull them off you'd have to um you'd have to hit a great shot to make up for it um so you know nothing was really gimmicky there was nothing like where they've had some of the problems at shinnecock where like balls wouldn't stay on greens or anything so it just seemed like it was just you know for the modern game and you know it's not a particularly long course either it's a par 70 it's about 7200 yards so i uh, just the nature of the place, the small greens, the undulations, the blind shots, it, you know, it asks you to, it asks you to hit a lot of different shot shapes and different flights and trajectories to hold the greens. It was just, it was a really pure test of golf, um, an enjoyable experience to see the pros tackle that. And, um, you know, I hope they're back there soon. If we are going to have a couple criticisms, of course, here's what I would say. But it really doesn't have anything to do with, well, one thing does and the other thing doesn't uh, in terms of how the course played for the championship. So, like, this course that they played, it's a composite course. But it's a little bit strange in that it's not like they're just playing different holes from three nines to get the composite course. Like two is really a par four that they play from like the woman's tee or I don't think we're supposed to say the woman's tee anymore. The forward tee Because listen, there's women here that would destroy John and I, so we shouldn't necessarily call it the woman's tee, but they play it from the forward tee to make it a par three, which is a little bit quirky because a par four and a par three are going to be designed very differently. Um, but what's really like quirky is the 13th hole, the one that dog-legged left, and then you had to hit the second shot over water. That's that's like not a hole at all on the course. What they did is, is the green they were hitting to is a par three on a, a hole that was not in use. And like the very end of the fairway by the water is like the green site. So what they did is they got rid of the green and turned it into a like just an extension of fairway. So it's like even if the course opened up and they were like, all right, we'll let members, if you want to play the composite course, you can play it on uh, July 12th. So I know Ridgewood does that with their composite course a couple times a year. Um, you, you know, you can't play it because it doesn't actually exist. You have to like literally uh, bulldoze over a hole to get it. So I, I guess that's maybe a slight drawback and that 
the course is only really playable for the U.S. Open. And then, like, 1 and 18 are completely flat. I, I almost think it would be because well, the thing is, it's kind of cool, is that they used to have a horse racing track right by the clubhouse, and 1 and 18, like, played through the track. Like, 18, where that bunker is, is where, like, a rounded corner of the horse racing track would come in. So you would have to hit over the horse racing track to get onto the 18th green. So it almost, so that's why those two holes are completely flat. It would almost be cool if they still had the horse racing track just to see it, just for the visual. But uh, yeah, but other than that, just an extremely pure test. Um, yeah, and I, I hope they're back there within the next 10 years. That's a wild visual, horse racing track in the middle of all that play. Like that just seems like fun. I wish I had, there were sure photos of that. That sounds really good. Uh, John, any thoughts that you had as far as the course? No, like I said earlier, um, I thought it was great. You know, they set it up perfectly. Um, and just, you know, just having it in, in New England, I think, was kind of added to the nostalgia of it for just for myself anyway, living here, living in the area. I think, I think it was just, you know, a, a great course to uh, a championship test. And, um, you know, that's all you can ask for at, at this kind of an event where, you know, you want to be rewarded for your good shots and, good play will result in birdies and like, you know, you're not going to hit a shot in the middle of the green and have it rolled, you know, all the way off. The only thing that was, I wouldn't say it was unfair, but it was like that eighth hole on par five where if you had a little too much spin on it, it would roll back down the hill, like 60 yards. Like that was maybe a little bit much, but other than that, there wasn't really anything that you could, you could say was, was, um, was unfair. So uh, I, I thought it was a great, a great course. And um, you know, we'll, we'll see if they come back. Now, Dave, the thing is, next year, it's the L.A. Country Club, which I literally know nothing about because I don't think they've had any major tournaments there that I can remember. So what's the scoop on the L.A. Country Club for next well, it's, year? Well, it's very secluded. I guess I can tell you that. <laughs> That's what I know so far. It's weird, though. Like you say, you know, what can I really tell you? I can't go to it. I'm not allowed to be a member. I don't think they would let me in if I replied to me, even if I had the money. Like, um. But uh, it is a really beautiful place, so I'm sorry I don't have much of a report to give you, but I did see, like, one other event there. Maybe, Mike, you might have seen it, like, at some point, you know, a few a year or so ago. Um, I man, I, I can't say. Like, it's – I'm sure it'll be a good challenge. I imagine that would be very similar to Riviera. I don't know of too many water traps or anything like that, but I'm just guessing all that. I have no idea, but uh, – Bad job out of me. I it's really prime time golf next year. That's that's the good news. Oh yeah, it's yeah. Some... It's a really good location. Nine, like it's interesting. It'll be easier finish. to get to there than Riviera. Like it'll be, even though it's all secluded and everything, it is in the middle of like Century City. So it's like it's not going to be nearly as difficult to get there, because rather than being nestled in this, you know, this neighborhood in the mountains like Riviera is, so you had all these shuttles and everything. There'll be shuttles, but I think the the methods of getting there should be a little easier. So. Um, that's all I can say. I, 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 I'm looking forward to the event, and hopefully I can go. I would love to get tickets for that. We'll see. I mean, I, I should have gone to the one in Torrey Pines like last year. I've, I, blew, I really blew it on that one. Like, it was right there. I could have gone. I could this. Didn't, I didn't I check it out. But here in my backyard, I feel like I should do it. Um, Mike, uh, anything as far as LA Country Club that you might know? <laughs> I'm so sorry. I just... Sure, I know a couple of things okay. about it. Um, <clears throat> it's considered one of the top golf courses in the country. Mm -hmm. uh, most publications have it actually slightly ahead of Riviera. Um, okay. 
they had either the Walker Cup or the U.S. Amateur there a few years ago. I forget which one it was, but it was an, a high-end amateur event. And I watched a little bit, of, uh, a little bit of it on Golf Channel. And then also, there's like a perfect recreation of uh, LA Country Club in PGA Tour 2K21. So you can go play the course and you get an idea of what it's like. Now, it's the same designer as Riviera. It has like more dramatic land to work with and more width. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, the look of Riviera is more of like this manicured sort of Augusta National type thing. LA Country Club sort of has that. You'll see like a lot of sandy barrancas and stuff like that, more so than you see at uh, Riviera. So uh, more with more dramatic landforms, but it's it's an unbelievable course. Like some of the holes there, just the land they have to work with. Um, and I think there's a couple drivable, um, like there's a par four that's like 290 yards, and then they have a par three that's like 285 yards. So... They, they have some long par threes. Like, I think it's the longest par three outside of that one hole at Oakmont. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's a top-notch course. It's I don't know if it'll play as a better U.S. Open venue than the country club, but just in terms of pure bones for a golf course, it's, uh, it's probably better than Wingfoot now at this point. So, wow. it's, yeah, no, it's a really, it's a really critically acclaimed course. It'll be... I mean, who knows who, how it'll actually play for U.S. Open? They've never had one there. But uh, in terms of just quality of the golf course, it's it's up there. You're not going to have many that are going to beat out L.A. Country Club. That's pretty cool. Thank you very much for running that down for us. Like, I, I appreciate you bailing me out there. Um, I definitely knew there was there was a lot of prestige to the golf course itself. Like, I definitely had a feel for that. Uh, putting on the stature of Riviera sounds very very canon. So uh, we'll get to know more about it in the next year or so, and uh, once we get to the U.S. Open next year. It'll be really fun to, to, to follow that. So um, speaking of what's coming up ahead, we can go into the schedule, but I think the more interesting topic right now, we'll get into like upcoming schedule later, but boy, the news right now. Holy cow. Brooks Kepka's mo- moving on to LIV. He was not doing much on the tour. Let's, let's be honest. Like he has just been really struggling. So I can't even say whether he's going to have any success on the tour or not on the new tour. Uh, good on him, I guess. I mean, he was pretty useless on the regular tour. So, um, back to Mike. Or no, let's just go to John to start this off because it's a very fascinating story. Like this tour, it started by the Saudi. Like the Saudis have funded it. They got Phil Mickelson as a big as a big spearhead toward organization of the league, and <laughs> just so much nonsense coming out of this tour. It's just ridiculous. Like what they're doing with the reporters. And the kind of the way that they're kiboshing, like their ability to like challenge them on anything, it's frightening to me. But hey, hey, these guys are making money off of it. All right, we'll see what happens. We'll see if it's viable. But they've got their star power. It's just kind of like John. Would you would you like it to like the XFL of golf? Like I don't know, I'm not sure if I go that far. But what do you think about the I, I what, about all of this stuff so far? Honestly, it's fascinating because it's like it's like <laughs> the old. Uh... WWF versus WCW like yeah. wrestling wars like you know trying to pick off the top talent to go on to to the new or the rival league. I don't know. I had like I have a lot of differing thoughts on this. Like I'm all for like competition in in pro golf. Like the PGA Tour. Like honestly, like I mean I watch the PGA Tour every week, but there's a lot of events that are just like really stale and like you could probably do without a lot of them. But obviously like TV contracts are, are king. 
and they need to provide content. So that's why you have like, you know, 50 something events a year. Um, but you know, the live, obviously it's, it's not, the money is not coming from a good place to say the least. And, you know, these guys are, are you know, they're rationalizing it. I, I think I heard, you know, in a press press conference, Graham McDowell was like, Oh, we're trying, you know, if we can be a part of them bettering themselves, like I'm all for it. Like, dude, like just maybe you should keep that line to yourself because it's like, you're, you're fronting like sports washing at this point for the, for the Saudis trying to rehabilitate their horrible human rights record and, and everything else that they've, they've done. And, um, you know, it, you know, they're giving these guys, I think Dustin Johnson got like reportedly a hundred million or 200 million, like to sign on. Um, but I don't know if you guys watched any of the first event uh, a couple of weeks ago in London. I mean, the, you know, it's pretty much what you would expect. Like it was just really just kind of awkward and weird watching the coverage on YouTube. And that's the first thing Like they don't have any major, you know, broadcast deals, you know, CBS and NBC are, aren't going to go for this. Um, I don't know, maybe Fox gets back into the game with this, but I don't know. I don't know if you want to be associated with this, to be honest with you, or any American company anyway, you want to be associated with this. But, um, you know, these guys, they're taking the money. And up to this point, I guess you could say Kepka is like first like player really in his prime to kind of jump ship. I mean, you could say Dustin Johnson is too, but he's what, like 37, 38 years old. Mm -hmm. He's getting closer to the back nine of his career than say, like there was rumors that like Colin Morikawa was going over, like that would have been a bigger story to me than say, um, you know, any of these guys that have gone. Or like I think Victor Hovland might be rumored to to take the jump. Like that would be a big story too. So like any of these guys, like Thomas or Scheffler or, or Spieth or McElroy, anyone like that, if they were to take the bag and, and head on over to live, I think PGA Tour would have a lot of problems. But it's like I was, I, you know, I was I was curious. I was watching the coverage, the YouTube. Uh, event on uh the final round it's like all right we got breaking news here where the live golf is signing a new player i'm like oh this is interesting who's this and they bring pat perez on the screen and i'm just thinking <laughs> yeah i don't think the pga tour is really worrying about uh old pat heading on over to live golf um you know in the first tournament like charles schwartzel had one on the tour in 10 years and he just he pocketed a cool four million so i could see why a lot of these other guys are just like oh hey you know, I'm going to go, you know, not going to take much to beat him, but just the, the, just the whole, the whole thing about it. And, and you saw today, I don't know if you guys read this. So now the tour PGA tour is now considering getting rid of like the, the two, the wraparound schedule essentially. So now what's happened in the past was, you know, the tour championship would end say August 31st, just to pick a date the next season. And like all the FedEx cup points and everything would start, like September 14th, they give them a week off. What they're thinking of doing now is going back to the calendar year. So like the season would start on January 1st and all the FedEx cup points and money or whatever would start then. However, in the fall would be like a special, like eight tournament series or something just for the top 50 players on the FedEx cup points from the previous year, huge guarantees of cash. So the difference between this and live is they could just pay some random guy. Liv could pay just some random guy to show up and play. Whereas this, you have to play good golf to qualify for it. Um, so you're still there's still a meritocracy to it, and you're you're paying out a bunch of cash. I imagine they could go to, you know, a lot of different locations throughout the world if they want to kind of make it international. I mean, maybe that's where the alliance with the European tour comes in. Although I did see Liv might be wanting to purchase the European tour. 
or DP World Tour, what it is now. So that could be that could cause a lot of problems if that ends up happening, because then, you know, all these guys who joined the Live Tour, you know, Jay Monahan says, well, you can't come back. And they're like, well, who gives a shit? Like, I'm going to play on the DP World Tour. I'm going to play the Live events. I think the only card that PGA has to play is, you know, like I just said, like if they're going to increase the purses on some of these events. Maybe they bump up some events already to, to really high purses, like the Travelers Championship this week, for instance. Maybe they next year they say, all right, this is a $20 million purse. Um, you know, let's, let's do that. Or they do that, like I said, the eight event series. Um, you know, that's a guaranteed cash and points and whatever. The only other card I think they have to play because I think the majors did. I don't think the majors are going to ban anybody from playing. I could be wrong about that. I just don't see that happening. The only other card they have to play is if this tour does not get accreditation for world golf ranking points. Um, because, you know, if you're just, it's essentially just going to be exhibitions and these guys are playing against themselves and they're, it'll still cycle themselves out of playing in the majors unless they've won one. Like Phil Mickelson is, is exempt for a bunch of shit, you know, for, for another 10 years, same with Dustin Johnson and, uh, Kapka too for winning, you know, winning his majors. He's all set. But someone like Abraham Abraham Answers is a perfect example. I think he's like number twentieth in the world right now. Well, that's great. But if you're going to play on the Live Tour for two years and get no world ranking points, well, guess what, buddy? You're not going to be playing in any majors anytime soon. So if they could somehow like block the Live Tour from getting world ranking points, I think that's really the only card they have to play at this point. So this is going to be fascinating to see how this plays out because. I don't know if all the defections are done. Um, I, I remember seeing like a teaser video, like, you know, Bubba Watson was going or Matthew Wolf, and honestly, or and DeShambo went too, and he sucks right now. So like, <laughs> we're put him on the live tour. Like who, who cares? Like, like they have like all the villains now on the live tour. They got Kidd and they had, you know, Patrick Reed and like Mickelson and like, you know, making news lately. So it's, it's like the villains tour, but um, you know, I don't think the defections are quite done. I don't know if there'll be any more big stars, but, some of these guys, honestly, might be waiting to play out through the FedEx Cup because, you know, just just to give a name, like I don't yeah. think Scotty Scheffler is going to live, but like why would he go to live right now and give up on the chance to win like $18 million in the FedEx Cup? Like he's not going to do that. So um, we'll really see how, how things, you know, things are evolving and, and we'll see how they play out in the next couple of months. But it's really fascinating to, yeah. to follow this. And every day it's like, you know, you're hearing news about, another player that that could be going so we'll see how how this goes in the next couple of months well you do have to wonder where the money is actually coming from and uh, whether this kind of whether the revenue generated from this tour is going to be sustainable i mean these are two obvious questions right off the bat because if no one's watching this then where are they where how are they going to generate revenue so anyway that's good my guy i want to hear your thoughts on this on this scenario this is a really really fascinating situation yeah, so this is a obviously a rapidly developing situation and one that's changed and I think took off and took off with less of a hitch going on than any of us really expected a couple months ago. Uh, I, I know we had a thing where we were on to talk about this when the news about Mickelson's quotes happened and then he took the break and then we all thought this was kind of dead in the water. But uh, Mickelson made amends and... You know, and then a few weeks ago, they announced the uh, tournament list, and that really wouldn't have made much news, but then Dustin Johnson was on it. And um, that sort of started more of an exodus of players that I don't think we thought would go at first, or at least after the 
Mickelson quotes happened, we didn't think we we're going to go. Like DeChambeau left, and uh, <clears throat> now, of course, the big one, Brooks Kepka. Now, I know Kepka's struggling and that he's never really done much outside of majors, but that's a big get for them. He's, what, 30 years old? He has four majors. That's the most majors in, like, the post-Tiger dominance era. It's him and Rory for each. So to get someone that's done that to jump over, that's uh, that's a pretty big get. Um, and then the other thing, too, was, yeah, they broadcast it on YouTube, and I don't think the format works well in a final round, but, you know, they were ready to go. Like, it was a pretty it was a pretty smooth broadcast. I was surprised by that. They, they clearly had done their homework. They knew how to broadcast a golf tournament, and they were ready. So it, it wasn't like... You were watching a, you know, a, a circus when you tuned in on YouTube to watch it. It was like, okay, this reminds me of watching a professional golf tournament. So, I don't know. Um, you know, I would say that what they really have going for them is that if you look at like what maybe the defining characteristic is of our time, because. Dave, you're a little bit older than John and I, but we're all roughly the same generation. I would almost say that greed is sort of the defining characteristic of the world over the last 30 years. And the whole appeal of this is to buy into people's greed and say, hey, I know you're worth eight figures, but you're getting screwed here. You bring in the eyeballs. Who cares about these guys struggling to make the tour? They can basically eat scraps and live out of a camper van. Well, meanwhile, we're going to give you all this guaranteed money. And you know what? <laughs> Especially when you look at like the certain uh, leanings of a lot of people that play professional golf, that's that's going to appeal to them. And it, the other thing that I find troubling about this is that. Look, I, I'm not going to say the PGA Tour going to China is great or anything. And as more and more has come out about China, I think that places like that and the NBA should try to withdraw business from them. But in one, China has like what, three, four billion people. And it's like, they're inevitably going to be a factor in the world and you have to deal with them. But just because the PGA tour isn't like ideologically pure, it's just, to me, that is such a weak defense. Well, the PGA tour does this. It's like, if you're defending someone charged with murder, do you just go, Your Honor, O.J. Simpson had far more evidence against him. Let my client off. Like, no, that's not a defense. You're going to serve, like, oh, they're giving you all this crap about how I'm a, I, I'm an independent contractor. I'm an independent contractor. I want to be able to do this. Are you really an independent contractor if you have a contract with the Live Golf Tour? If you don't want to play the Al Sheik Classic in Jezza and you want to go, or wherever the hell it is, and you want to go and play the Sea Island Classic because your buddies with Davis love, what do you think the Live Tour is going to say to that? They're going to let you go? You say, I'm an independent contractor. You're not going. So there's been such a farce over... Now, John's right that some of the tournaments are pointless, but the, the, the whole I'm I'm invigorated by this tournament, by the formatting, that's nonsense. What, you get the tee off on the 14th hole instead of one or ten? That That's the big thrill in your life? <laughs> Who cares? Or it's a shotgun start? Uh, all right. So I'll give some credit to DeChambeau for at least flat out saying, yeah, financials and more time. Okay, fine. You know what? 
it, it's dirty money, but at least you're admitting it's money and time. Okay, that's, but so, but to circle back, and I shouldn't have gone on the tangent, but to circle back to my point is, you're acting as an agent of the Saudi government, and you're complicit in helping them trying to cover up horrific human rights abuses. The fact that they were in, intimately involved in 9-11 is more and more of the stuff becomes declassified. They were involved with, like, setting up the terror, terror cells here, and it's honestly, it's shocking that we didn't bomb them after 9-11, regardless of how much work we have to do with them. And you're complicit in that. So, yeah, and I know there's been this sentiment thrown out that okay everyone has their price all right yeah but most of the people like all of us we're working we're trying to pay bills and whatnot and sure people like us are going to have a price because it would completely change our life i i mean i would think i i I shouldn't necessarily speak for you guys but you're talking about people here who for the most part have enough money to live their life comfortably for the rest of their lives without much of a problem or if you look at what their expected future income would be based off what they've done in golf, that yeah, it's more, but they're still going to live a good life. So people like that, I, I'm sorry, I, I'm not buying the, well, how can you say no to this? Well, the fact is, is that all of the top 15 players in the world have said no to this. Tiger Woods apparently said no to 900 million. Rory McIlroy said no to how much? Apparently John Rahm said no to 400 million. So, uh, I, like I said in the beginning, it's it, it's fueled by greed. It really is. Um, and and the other thing too is, and this is not really to defend Liv. It's just an observation. Monahan, when he came into the booth in the Canadian Open, he was terrible. He was absolutely terrible. He was unable to answer a question straight up. He just gave like these canned lines that weren't really responsive to what Nance asked him. And it wasn't like Nance was trying to give him tricky questions or anything. Nance was literally setting it up for him to like, to have a good answer. And he just didn't have it. Like they asked him, it's like, well, why does the PGA tour need like, uh, like what does the PGA tour do for the players? Why do the players need them? And he gave like some crap about like, well, they'll have to come back to us and uh, but the answer to that is a very simple one. He didn't say it, which is that the PGA Tour, through its qualification system, is constantly bringing in new players and spitting out the ones that aren't performing well enough. And what that does for you as a golfer is it allows you to play against the best fields in the world, top to bottom, week in, week out. And the way that you become great as a golfer and notable as a golfer is not by going to a course and shooting 61 or 62. It's by beating these fields and beating this competition. And that's what allows you to separate yourselves. Like if Tiger Woods came to Connecticut and played against John and I and beat us by 50 strokes, is anyone really going to care? No. So that's really what the PGA Tour does. And then you can also throw in the fact, well, you know, guys, if we go to this structure where the guys who are basically just trying to get their tour cards don't live comfortably enough where they can train throughout the year and have their accommodations taken care of and not have to work part-time jobs. If you switch the structure of professional golf so that that's the case and it's only really the notable players and everyone else, it's like, it's not really much of a viable living. That's eventually going to erode the depth and quality because people just aren't going to be able to do it. So I really think that was his answer there. And he didn't have a, he didn't have a good answer for it. And it's just shocking because you know, you get to be like a commissioner of a league by you're supposed to have good skills. And when you, when you put, when you put a mic in front of them, it was like, 
he had never spoken in public before. So it was a shockingly bad performance by Monahan. And to uh, what John was saying, John, I, I think that's official. Um, maybe the PGA Tour, like official communications, didn't come out and say, yeah, we're doing this. But the stuff I was reading, now granted, I didn't take a, a super close look at it yet. I think that's officially happening where they're going to have eight tournaments throughout the year. They clarified it's now it's not going to be only in the fall. Like half of them will be in the fall and half will be spread out. But yeah, eight tournaments a year, no cuts. And um, with purses all bigger than the players championship is currently. So that kind of shows you that live does have some momentum here um, that they forced the PGA tours hand and the PGA tours responding by offering up a greater amount of guaranteed money, big money tournaments. So we'll see if that turns the tide. If I were personally in this position, even if like I, I was concerned about only about money, really, I would be concerned about the long-term viability of live because if you're paying out so much in guaranteed money to these players and then you're paying out so much in prize money and you don't have a major television partner and you're going to necessarily scare away investment because of how much publicity is behind us. I know the Saudis have unlimited pockets, but how long are they just going to eat money, especially if every time they have a uh, tournament, they're going to be talking about 9-11, Kashagi, 9-11, Kashagi. Then it's like the purpose of it kind of gets nullified. So I don't know how many years this will last. I don't know if the model is viable, really. And I don't know if anyone really knows if it is based on what they're paying players. So, um, but it's gotten off to a stronger start than I think any of us really expected. So, um, and yeah, like John said, like for our generation, the only thing we can really compare it to is WWF, WCW, because none of us are old enough to remember like the WHA or the AFL or the U the original USFL or the ABA. And that's what you have to compare it to. It's not like the XFL or the current USFL where they're just seeking to like, Hey, people want to watch football right, right. more often, but we're not trying to take the players. No, they're trying to take the players. And we haven't seen that in American professional sports since the 1970s. So uh, we are in uncharted waters here. We are, and I think it would be a really it would be a it would be a, it would be a great story and really something you could root for if you didn't have the Saudi government involved. It's just the unfortunate aspect of this. If this is just a private organization that was funded differently, I think it'd be a very different conversation. But it's hard to shake that, just like you said, Mike, and that's why I just think they're going to have this challenge the entire time that they're operating, however long they are operating. Um, I can't even. I, it would be very difficult for me to project how long this lasts, but it doesn't seem sustainable to me. Like they're just throwing all this money at people without really any feel for whether they can build a big broadcasting contract. And I feel like every big league that's ever sustained for more than a couple of years has had that broadcasting arrangement, good ratings, good media coverage, good response. I don't know where, if that's going to come for them or not, but, um, because I don't know if you can make that kind of money with just YouTube. I, mean, I know YouTube can make money, but that's that's a whole different different deal. So, um, John, I think I, we haven't gone to you, to you yet for your thoughts on the overarching comment, I mean, the overarching story of the Live Tour. But if you'd like to add anything to that conversation, feel free. Oh no, I, I had a lot of thoughts. I mean, I, I really don't have anything else to add. I just it, it's 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 a it's a crazy time for yeah. sure, and I, I do agree with your point about. Like how long can this last without any kind of like big media exposure or 
I mean, I, you know, people are saying, oh, the Saudis are willing to lose billions of dollars over, like, but are they though? Like, really? Like, someone had mentioned that they had put a lot of money into some race car or, or something, and then they just like kind of walked away from the deal after a couple of years because it wasn't, it wasn't doing what they wanted. And I can almost see the same thing happening here after like three years. If this isn't really, if it's nothing more than say. 15 events and they're still broadcasting on YouTube and on their website. Like what's, like, what's the point? And like, if, if, if it has no traction in the, you know, in the, in the scheme of, of, like I said, like world golf ranking points or anything like that. I mean, I don't know. They might pull the plug and then these guys are going to be crawling back to the PGA tour at that point. But I mean, would Jay Monahan take them back? I he probably would. And it'd be a sad day that he, I mean, they, those guys should be on their own at that point. But I mean, you know, I bet he would, I bet he would take them back, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see how, how long this goes and if there's going to be more, more defections between now. And I, I would say by the end of the season, you know, once the FedEx cup is done you might, you might see a lot more. So and I guess the other interesting thing is if Liv doesn't expand their field, like these guys, like, for example, you know, I'm just going to throw out a name, uh, the U S amateur kid, James Piat. Like they probably gave him a decent signing bonus. They probably gave him a couple million dollars. All right, good for you, kid. You're going to get to play in the first eight events. Once they get, like, say they get, like, 48 decent players, he's shit out of luck, and he's got nowhere to go. And, you know, some of these people are probably going to regret their initial decision to, to go on with this tour. That's my opinion. I completely agree with that. I just, like I, as I was saying, I just feel like, um, you're going all in on something that you just have no certainty of what the future is. Now, generally speaking, you do have to take risks if you're going to if you're going to have a league row, right? So these risks have to happen, and I'm sure some players are feeling in their mind that the initiative is theirs to make that happen. But it's going to be very, very challenging for everybody who's on this tour. It's going to be challenging for the tour itself, the people who run it. It's going to be challenging for the broadcasters who run it. If a major TV, major media company steps in and takes over the coverage and has a big broadcasting agreement by streaming or via television, that's definitely going to be a game changer. And I'm not ruling that out. I think it could absolutely happen. You all mentioned Fox could be, that'd be weird though. Rah, rah. I could see streaming. I don't, I don't know if Fox would do it, but I could see like Amazon or Apple or something doing this. Oh my God. Could you imagine Apple getting involved in that? Oh my goodness. What a blow to all their little, public rights campaigns and there's social media i mean there's social consciousness campaigns like god just throw all that shit out the window if they actually jump in on that jeez i mean i mean Andy pointed that out like in, in discord recently like you know like these guys aren't really up and in, in, into this social consciousness stuff and listen it's it is what it is but uh, mike what do you think do you think apple would go that far would they do such a thing that's an I don't know. That's, I wouldn't rule it out either. Like, it's always possible, John. Interesting. But Mike, what do you think? I mean, I, I don't know enough about the culture that's really going on at Apple to answer that. But you know, the thing is, though, even if they do get some sort of major rights deal, I still don't know if it's a viable business just right. because how can you be paying out $4 million to a winner plus hundreds of millions in guaranteed money and turn a profit? I, I don't know. It seems, seems like a bit much. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's designed to get the PGA tour to try to buy them at some point, like after a couple of years of trying to like rehab the image, maybe that's the idea. Um, 
I mean, that would kind of be in line with what a lot of the leagues in the seventies did, which is they knew that like the WHA knew that they couldn't, like they signed Bobby Hull, who was one of the big stars in the NHL. Now they, they knew that they couldn't be offering up like triple or quadruple the salary of players that it wasn't sustainable. But you know, you, if you if you grab enough big names, then you sort of force the other organization's hand, and that's what happened with those leagues. The AFL was a little different because the AFL came back and beat the NFL in two straight Super Bowls. So that, that's, <laughs> no, that's that is slightly right. different. Like the ABA, the WHA, um, and the USFL, they were not on the same. Well, the USFL just flat out folded, but. Um, those leagues weren't like on the level. Like if you had had a WHA NHL championship, the NHL team would have killed them. Same thing with the NBA or the, maybe the Nets team with Irving could have given an NBA uh, finals, an NBA championship team, a, a battle. But um, yeah, maybe that is the plan. Eh, a couple of years of trying to normalize us and force the PGA tour to, for a shitload of money to like buy it back. Who knows? It's all. Yeah. I mean, that, I definitely thought about that. I was thinking like, well, the, uh, the the objective in the end, and if you just leave out the government and world politics out of it, when you talk about an upstart league of that caliber, throwing money and like you have all this capital and you're 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 putting it into you into big big names and what have you. You're putting it into your prize money and what have you. And I think the purpose, a big part of the objective, is to force the incumbent league aka the pga tour to put out bigger prizes and bigger contracts and they seem to have done it if you're talking about this this small series that we're mentioning the eight tour tour events um but uh can they go even further than that i mean that could be their aim i don't know it sounds to me they want to take over the world but but listen maybe that's that's what they want to do in the end and i i haven't misread so very all these points are great um Anything you want to stay on this topic a little bit? Because I, I think I'm pretty much good. Like I'm pretty much got the motivations of both sides of this. You are correct, Mike. That man, the PJ Tour is just not really dropping the ball in terms of having to respond to this, other than the the you know the adjustment in their schedule. But uh, wow, I don't know. It's crazy. That's all I can say. I'm a little worried, but but as you mentioned, I think there's going to be some point where that's just not sustainable anymore. So. Uh, John, anything, any closing thoughts as far as the LIV stuff? I think we covered it. Um, one interesting aspect, I guess, of it is the team aspect. And it's it's kind of like, it's really silly if you like saw these team names and that they came up with, like, you know, they have like the, the Majestics and the Stingers and four aces. It's, it's pretty crazy. But I do think there could be like an element of this, maybe that the PGA Tour eventually could, could, uh, um, maybe implement somehow like some kind of team challenge like imagine if like you had different golf brands like you know uh callaway titleist TaylorMade, you know just foot joy all the different brands and then like they had you know all the co- different college kids coming out and like you would have a draft and like you could draft them to your uh to your squad and then like you know as as you know you would you know as, as the, the year would go on and like someone would play uh, play well like you could call somebody up from like the b squad to the you know to your team and then there could be like a, a pot at the end of the year i don't know i'm just like just going off the rails with this but i do think there could be an, ele- an element of some kind of team aspect in golf that i think hasn't really been tapped um i don't think live is going to tap into it but i do think there's there's kind of potential for it 
uh, just in general. But that's just kind of my crazy, my crazy thoughts. Well, I, I, you all have spoken so well on this. Like I, I I've gone gained so much perspective in your all's, um, in your all's analysis of of these of these storylines. It's really quite an quite a fascinating time, regardless of you know how it ends. Um, I, 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 it, it, it's just going to be interesting to follow. We'll find out where, where these, these two leagues, where these two tours go in the next two years. So, um, staying on tour coverage, the, the news from, um, earlier this morning is that Nick Faldo is going to call, is going to hang it up after the Wyndham championship. And it's a sad day for all of us because he was a, he's been a very good broadcaster. I mean, he's not perfect. I we talked about that before too, but um, golf, golf coverage would not be the same. He's been he's been at it for a good while. Like I feel like it's been about I don't know close to twenty years at this point that he's been doing tournaments with with uh, either CBS or Golf Channel. So, Mike, let's go to you and get your thoughts on Nick Faldo's career as it more or less comes to an end. Yeah, unfortunate news. Um, you know, I'm not entirely surprised because you know, he doesn't look like he's 65 because I, I assume he dyes his hair. So he doesn't look like an old man, really. Neither does Nance. But, um, yeah, you know, he, he's 65 years old. Um, and he made this point. He's like, hey, listen, I've basically been traveling like at least half the year since I was 20 years old. So you know, it's like, I'm tired. I, I want to spend some time with uh, my, I think it's his fourth wife now. <laughs> but, oh, listen, goodness, really? <laughs> no, listen, that happens with people. It's not, it's not a judgment. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, know, I think yeah. it is. And uh, they bought a place in Montana and he just sort of wants to relax. Now there was some speculation that, Oh, he's going to live. Now he had an interview with Dan Patrick and he said, no, but even before that, there's no way Nick Faldo is going to work for Greg Norman. <laughs> so I think as long as Norman is in charge of, uh, Oh yeah. The, I mean, or as the commissioner, he's not going to go there. No, there's no. like, a, <laughs> those are two alphas who were constantly trying to one up each other throughout their careers. Right. Faldo is not going to like have the end of his public life be Greg Norman was my boss. So I, I'd be very, very, very surprised if he went to live but yeah it's uh, it's an unfortunate day um like you said not, not a perfect announcer but good uh offered good insight about what was going on had a little bit of a dry wit to him um so it was you know it was always an enjoyable uh listen and it's just it's amazing how much like turnover now cbs will have since like 2012 because um you know Oosterhouse unfortunately had um early onset dementia and had to retire and you know Faraday went to NBC and then they fired McCord and Costas so it's like that whole group is gone basically it's just it's Nance now and you know Immelman's not bad but he won a Masters and he's not he wasn't really a big he, not not really he wasn't a big star in the game at any point so they're gonna be lacking star power for the booth um and yeah, you, you do wonder, John mentioned this in our text that uh, is this really a Lanny Watkins situation? And I would I would kind of think it is like they will definitely, I think, if, if someone retires, I don't know who it would be right now off the top of my head, but I would almost think that they would be looking to get like a retiring golfer to eventually step into this role in a few years. But uh, yeah, well, uh, 
you know, to quote the band Journey, the wheel in the sky keeps on turning. So that's just the nature of things. Johnny Miller's gone. Nick Faldo's going to be gone. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, um, you know, we haven't been able to replace those guys with people. I mean, obviously, NBC, just a disastrous turn in quality. Uh, <laughs> Miller to Azinger. Um it won't be as bad with uh, Immelman, but it's it's still it's a drop in quality, and uh, yeah, it, the broadcast's not going to be as good without Nick Faldo. So, um, yeah. you know, it was surprising because he was like considered he wasn't good with the media. He didn't have, like have many good sound bites. So, uh, for Faldo to become a lead announcer and to have like as good of a career as he did, it would have surprised a lot of people. So. That's something to keep in mind where if, like, someone jumps into the broadcast booth, if you're just like, oh, well, that seems weird. Well, you know, you you don't know until they do it. Like, Faldo surprised a lot of people. So, um, you know, he's been on, our, been on our televisions every week for, like, the last 15 years because he yeah. had to deal with NBC, too, in addition to, uh, well, NBC Golf Channel in addition to CBS. So we saw him every week. So, yeah. It'll be it'll be sad without him. You know, you know what is a little bit unfortunate though. He mentioned this in the Dan Patrick interview. It seemed like he tried to negotiate a deal where he would like uh, announce halftime for CBS, uh, take a reduced schedule, and they didn't want to do it. So, wow, now that's unfortunate. Yeah, I, I don't know why they wouldn't agree to that. That that seems that's nuts. That seems that seems so fair. Yeah, I agree with you, Mike. That's that's just unfortunate. Um, I just see these signs of CBS started to get pretty cheap with their coverage, and I feel like that's one other that's another example of it. And it's really it's really too bad. Like, um, I really love your observation about about uh, Faldo as a player not really giving you the feel for what he'd be like as a broadcaster. You just never know. Like, I mean, when he was playing, what didn't seem like the most media friendly guy, but hey, it worked out really well. And it's kind of for that same reason. I'm thinking like, you know what? I bet you one of these days, like. If Bill Belichick ever ended up doing like studio work or or work in the booth for NFL games, I think he'd be fantastic. To be honest with you, he'd be really good. Like, I think he's a really engaging guy. He just didn't want to deal with reporters. That's all. So anyway, let's go to John. I want you to get your thoughts on on Faldo as well. I mean, it's been an amazing career. Yeah, like you guys said, I mean, he's been on our TV every week for well, not every week. I mean, he takes <clears throat> takes a few weeks off here and there, but practically every week for the last 20 years and you know he grew on you like his it's definitely his he, I, I feel like he showed more of his personality and his humor over the course of time and him and nance were a great pairing i mean they you could tell like they had good chemistry and really he had good chemistry with everybody that he worked with which as you guys mentioned like he wasn't always the most you know jovial person when he was a player but um it definitely turned into it as as an analyst i mean you know, he, he had his moments where, like, you maybe it wasn't the best. Like, earlier this year at the Masters when he spoiled McElroy's bunker shot, like, that was that was a rough moment. Like, that was a tough tough scene. He should not have done that. But um, in general, like, he really didn't have many complaints with him. And um, definitely will be missed, for sure. I'm honestly surprised that they didn't promote uh, Ian Baker Finch because he's usually fills in when Faldo is, like, taking the week off. Like, he would fill in as the lead analyst on the 18th hole um i'm guessing they maybe went with immelman because he's younger uh that'd be my only guess and he could you know say he ends up doing a great job the first couple years but then yeah you could sign him to another like a long contract or something whereas baker finch is 
he's got to be almost as old as Faldo, probably a little bit younger. Um, and, you know, so he's not going to be as around as, as long as, um, as Immelman would be, but I don't know. I mean, Immelman is, he's okay. Like it's a little annoying sometimes, but like, he's not, he's not Azinger bad. Definitely not. But he, he just doesn't really like, he doesn't have like the gravitas. I guess that's what I would say. Like he, yeah, he won the masters, but what else did he do? Like, it just, it doesn't really fit to be like the lead announcer on, on CBS. I mentioned to you guys in our text thread, like if Mickelson, he, he should have waited it out and just taken this job because he would have been perfect to be like the lead CBS announcer. And he could have probably got as much money as he, they're paying him. Well, not 200 million, but he could have gotten a good contract from CBS to be like, you know, to sit up there. If you imagine him and Nance for like the next 20 years, like that would be, that'd be phenomenal. Um, but not going to happen. So I guess we'll see if there's, if, like you guys said, if there's anybody that's going to retire here in the next you know, five to 10 years and they could just kind of prop them up into the CBS booth because I, I don't see Immelman working out long-term. I think it's kind of a bridge to, to whoever's going to come next. So we'll, we'll see what happens. And yeah, there's going to be some reshuffling. They're going to have to bring in some new people because, you know, Immelman is usually like kind of on a tower hole or, you know, calling a hole. So I'll have to bring CBS off to bring somebody else in to fill his spot. Um, so yeah, a lot of musical chairs here with the, the golf announcers and uh, we'll, we'll see where we'll see where the CBS lineup looks like uh, for next season. Yeah. So with the person with the most t- uh, with the most uh, service time at CBS golf coverage at this point be I'm trying to think would it be Ian Baker? Well, Nance, Nance for sure. Oh, Nance, Nance. I mean, right, right. But besides, I should say besides Nance, like in terms Probably of the, Baker it, Finch, I'm guessing. Yeah, I think so too. But then after that, it's like it gets interesting. Like I don't know how much of a, how much how many events. Um, oh, God. well, the rest of them were all new. Like Nabilo and Immelman came on at like pretty yeah. much the same time. I'm guessing after like Mike said, they got rid of. Faraday and McCord right. and Costas. I think Immelman and uh, yeah. Navolo came on like right after that. So right. I think they're they're pretty new. I was thinking Navolo would have been like the next in line after that after Finch. So Ian Baker Finch. Like so, yeah, that's your probably. I think-, I think that what happened with Navolo was is they brought him in for bigger events to uh, like fill Ooster uh, Peter Oosterhouse's role, but. Like, I, I don't remember off the, you know, no, actually, no, I, I do think he was with CBS for about 10 years now. I think he replaced it, replaced Oosterhouse, but he wasn't necessarily there for every event. I can't remember off the top of my head, um, but um, no, I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure Nabilo predated um, like the whole turnover when McCord and Costas got let go. Yeah. He was involved with them, at least for the Masters and the PGA before then, so it's so interesting. Oh wait, do we ca- do we count a uh, Vern Lundquist for service time? Like, <laughs> let's go roll him out for the PGA Championship. Then, yeah, they didn't bring him out for that this year. Usually they bring him out for the Masters, the PGA. He's just down to the Masters now. Yeah, I mean, oh man, I was wondering about. I was wondering where I would weigh in on that too, Mike. I I had no. I mean, he does his one hole at the Masters, the 16th. Um, so yeah, there it is. I mean, it's gonna be a different cbs broadcast going forward so speaking of going forward let's uh let's close it out with our look ahead at the schedule and this is anything else you guys you all wanted to get into before getting into the schedule but the schedule is fairly straightforward we've got john's coveted event the travelers coming up next week that's gonna be fun over there in connecticut good to have them back in town which is interesting because like it's not that far from where the u.s open was like brookline massachusetts it's not 
I don't know. Maybe it's it's one state over, so it's not too far away. So I wonder how much of the field from the U.S. Open will be there. So John, I'll give it to you to to uh, preview the Travelers. Any what are you looking forward to as we go into this weekend? Yeah, it's a great field. I don't know if whether it's just like you said, Dave, the proximity. I mean, the the Travelers has turned into like one of the I won't say premier events because it's clearly not a major or it's not like a world golf championship event, but of the regular PGA Tour events, it's turned into one of the better events on the calendar and the field's pretty good every you know most years but even more so this year i think maybe uh jay sent out a memo like y'all are showing up to hartford because we need to like do all we can here to put on a good product each week um just i'll just read you the top like 10 names here in the field like so scheffler mcelroy thomas burns cantley shawfully speed m neiman Finau. Keegan Bradley. I mean, those like it just goes on and on. Like the, the depth of this field is just phenomenal. So it's going to be a great tournament. Um, the last, uh, it, really, the entire back nine just lends itself to some great drama. There's like a playoff at this tournament every single year. Um, it's a fun course. It's not really long, but it's tricky because they they uh, the way the greens kind of like slope off. It's it's hard to kind of chip around the greens and just. Um, just in general, they, they kind of trick it up a little bit and put the pin positions where it's it's hard to get it close on your approach shot. And then also, in turn, if you miss the green, it's going to be hard to get it up and down. Um, so, it, you know, it's, it's a little tricky course. Like last year, the winning score was only 13 under par, which for a regular tour event is really uh, kind of one of the lower ones out there. So um, it's a great field. It's going to be a great tournament. I shall be in attendance one day this week. So. I'm looking forward to that and seeing a bunch of a uh, bunch of good golf and um, yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be great. So this is the last like really well, I shouldn't say last good tournament before the um, British Open or Open Championship. Um, next week's the John Deere Classic. So if you want to take a week off of golf, don't watch that one. It's gonna be it's gonna be a, a tough scene. Honestly, like the Live Field will be better than the John Deere Classic. <laughs> um, Live will be playing in Portland, Oregon next week at Pumpkin Ridge. Uh, that course has hosted a number of um, USGA events. I, I remember like the Women's Open being there for whatever reason a number of years ago. I think they had the USA Mitchell there too, uh, not too long ago. But in any event, um, the Live Tour will have a better field uh, to to follow than the John Deere Classic next week. However, the following week is the Scottish Open, which is a, now a composite or a co combined tournament between the. Um, DP World Tour and the PGA Tour. So that should have a pretty good field. You know, I'm guessing all these top players will go over there to get some Lynx golf practice in before the Open Championship. So, yeah, two out of the next three uh, will be pretty good, and then we'll get ourselves ready for St. Andrews in a month. So uh, definitely looking forward to this event and then the Scottish Open coming up. Yeah, right on, John. I mean, that that's a pretty good setup. Yeah, I, I like I like that rundown. I mean, it's it's its own down your tradition, the John Deere. It's like the most skippable event on the tour, I guess. I would I'd say at this point. So uh, let's go to Mike and let's get your look ahead too. I mean, anything that stands out to you as far as the lead up to St Andrews? You can even get into the Open if you want to. Well, I, I guess a couple things. The big one is that at the Scottish Open, because that is a now a co-sanctioned DP World Tour. PGA Tour event and the DP World Tour as of now had said has said live guys can play what the hell is going to happen there when you have a co-sanctioned event it's going to be like literally where the NWO would like come in and beat people up and spray paint them on the back like that that's going to be a wild scene 
if that's like not resolved by then because You're right. like, sorry to interrupt you because i saw the the they're playing in germany this week and i saw like Ustazen and garcia and a couple other guys are playing so you imagine they're going to try to play in a couple of weeks at, at the scottish open yeah no absolutely um so yeah that's our uh that's like our next big flashpoint is the Scottish Open, because how does that get worked out? If you have standing to play on the DP World Tour and the DP World Tour says, yeah, live guys can play, then I don't know what happened. Maybe there's something that says because it's a PGA Tour event and they're suspended from the PGA Tour, they can't play even if it's co-sanctioned. I don't know, but that that could be really crazy. Um yeah, and I'll definitely agree with John that the live event at Pumpkin Ridge will outshine the John Deere Classic. You know, the John Deere Classic uh, means a lot to people like Steve Stricker and uh, Zach Johnson, but I don't think they're exactly moving the needle these days or if they ever move the needle at any <laughs> point in their lives. So, yeah, no, I'll agree with him on that. Now, it is blood money, but that's going to be interesting to watch, though, the first live event in the United States. And, yeah, Pumpkin Ridge was the uh, site of the 96 U.S. Amateur, where Tiger Woods had that uh, come-from-behind win to win his third consecutive U.S. Amateur, which no one had ever done uh, before. So that's really <clears throat> what it's notable for. Uh, after that, let's see. Well, of course, yeah, the Open Championship now – um, I touched on this a little bit during our last recap that they have lengthened uh, the old course at St. Andrews a little bit. So where I think it's like 7,300 yards now, but um, the thing is though, like John said, if there's no wind, you could definitely see a 59. So I, I do wonder if we get a day with no wind and there is a 59, if that'll make them like reduce the amount of times they actually come here. Cause right now the schedule is generally every five years. Now things got screwed up because of uh, COVID and it's been seven years, but uh, we'll see what happens. Now what normally saves that course is that the ending stretch is very compelling. Even if like a lot of the holes on the way to it are quirky, like 16 is a par four, and it's a, it's definitely a gettable hole. But the problem is, it's like you have the road and the town starting right on the right. So if you're even right of the fairway, you're out of bounds. So you can easily make a double bogey on that. Then on 17, it's the road hole, which is one of the most famous, if not the most famous hole in golf, which is the hardest par four in the world. Um, 500 yards, the small green with that center bunker, and then of course the road on the right. And then the 18th hole, the Valley of Sin, which it should be a birdie hole. It's like 340 yards, and the, the fairway is literally you could land a 747 down it. But what ends up happening is, especially on Sunday where they put the pin, it's like you either hit your ball far enough down and then you're at like an awkward – if you hit driver, you're at like an awkward yardage where you can't really spin it. Or if you lay back, you've got to worry about spinning it back off the green. So it ends up like it's a hole you should take advantage of, but a lot of people just don't to the extent that they should be able to. So, you know, if we can avoid something really weird happening at first, it should be an exciting end, uh, ending stretch there. Pretty neat, and uh, so it's with so yeah, the open going back to St Andrews, where I was reading that they hadn't really changed it that much in two hundred years, but there were some, and Mike has kind of broke down some of the nuances there. 
So uh, if you're looking ahead to the Open, John, uh, what are you looking forward to yourself as far as what you, what's what's to come at St. Andrews? Now, it does come over there from time to time, and, and it's always interesting, but I know you both have had critical comments of it in the past, so I'm curious as to what your perspective is for this tournament going in um, in 2022. I mean, it's the home of golf. So I mean, I can't, like, criticize them for having it there. I mean, right. I know why they have it. It's just compared to if you want if you want a major championship to be like a test of like you know headed on a difficult golf course like it's not a difficult golf course unless like i said there's conditions which are the very mill could be like i mean you know, i don't know what the weather's gonna be like in three weeks but you know if there's gale force winds and rain like it's gonna be tough but if there's like you I've, i remember past opens where it's 80 degrees and sunny or like 70 and sunny and like there's no wind like these guys are just gonna destroy it um, which, you know what, it is what it is. Like everyone's playing the same course. So it's not like anyone has a, you know, has an advantage at that point. Like, I know there's always the complaints about like, oh yeah, well, there's like one wave where that gets wiped out because of the weather. Well, if everyone's playing the same easy course, it's going to be, um, you know, it's going to be equitable for everyone. It's just, you know, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's going to be a, an easy, easy game for most of these players. If there's no, if there's no rough or, or I'm sorry, no win, but, um, yeah, the, the the finish is definitely exciting. That road hold can be can be tough. I mean, you see the videos of guys they get in that bunker on by the green. It's just you know it's game over. <laughs> if you're like up against the face, or um, you know you see them like you know one leg out and like you know one leg in, and they're trying to like contort themselves to hit a shot. And um, you also see the videos of like guys ricocheting it off the road because they get so close. Or, I'm sorry, the wall behind the road to get back onto the green. Uh, so that's always pretty cool. So I, I do like that hole. Um, is, this is also another course that's like been on every video game imaginable. And I think we've probably all probably shot under 60 on it. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, it's an easy course without the conditions, but everyone's playing the same course. So um, it should be exciting anyway, like for sure. Like all, all these guys bring their A game. It's going to be a phenomenal tournament. And that's really all you can ask for. Um, I guess I'll make one other comment not mentioned to related to this. I was just thinking about it earlier. Like, how are these U.S. courses, like, you know, you know, with, like with their own conscience signing up for the for the live tour? Like, like the, the person who should not be who, who shall not be mentioned, um, you know, our, our former president who owns courses that's going to be part of this circuit. I, I can see that. But like Pumpkin Ridge, who like hosted USGA events and is like a well-respected course like why are you having a live event at your tournament at your course like that i don't understand and they had to get got a serious payout from 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 live which is just is horrible now that i think about it like why is pumpkin ridge hosting this tournament why isn't it like on all overseas you know I, I that's that's what i don't understand right now that's difficult for me to get to, to handle as well like i you know when mike mentioned it i'm like really guys like what what what's that all about like and portland like what that doesn't seem like a portland thing to do well like obviously the country clubs are operating in a different planet but that bothers me too i guess that's all i'll say i mean i don't know mike <laughs> i'll give it to you for any other thoughts on that and then, and then other than that we'll go to you for final thoughts uh, well, I mean, uh, a board meetup at the Live Golf event at Trump National Bedminster might be fitting, so <laughs> maybe it'll serve a purpose for that. I, I, 
I, I shouldn't take knocks there. We all, we all had many years of great times there, but uh, yeah, I mean, look, um, in terms of what clubs want to do it, they're country clubs. They're wealthy white people own them. Look at the political leanings of wealth. You know, I know we don't want to delve into politics too much here because you know people watch the show and their leanings may be one way or another. And we are really here to talk about sports, but. Uh, but to that point where eh, look, wealthy white people, they tend to go, uh, a lot of them go one way. If you like go on Twitter and you find someone who like passionately defends live or is like passionately sticking up for it, click on their profile and see how long it takes you to find a retweet or a tweet that the election was stolen. Because without a doubt, every single one except for one i found one person who was like clearly like a far left guy but for whatever reason loves live it's probably a bot but um <laughs> you're calling it a yeah, bot no, it's been it's been without <laughs> fail everyone's like yeah. pga tour greed this greed that what's the problem with live and then click on the thing you the election was stolen so i mean i think that's your answer is that wow. you know it's just that's a that's a very conservative right-leaning uh segment of the populace and there is more of this one it's just about chasing the bottom line and two it's they're not the the idea of doing business with the saudis they're whatever it's money it's weird though because then what about what everybody was saying around 2002 like does that not count now <laughs> just like it just, I don't get Look, it. Logic and consistency went out the window in the society a long time ago, yeah, so I don't yeah. think we can expect that. All right. Well, fair point. Um, well, I appreciate you, Mike. Um, I mean, that's a strange note to end on. Um, any other thoughts before we before we go to John? Oh, I, I, there is one thing I wanted to bring up because it's a very noteworthy achievement and we haven't talked about it. So the DP World Tour had this mixed event a few weeks ago, uh, something in Scandinavia, which was co-hosted by Henrik Stenson and Annika Sorenstam. And Lynn Grant, who is a European uh, lady professional golfer, won the event by nine strokes. Now, she did play different, like, she played, the women played different tees than the men, but otherwise they played the same course. She won by nine strokes over Stenson and one other guy. And she beat, like, the next woman in the field by something like 16 or 18 strokes. So she's the first woman to ever officially win a DP World Tour event. So that that's an absolutely incredible accomplishment. And, I, you know, I, I don't know much about her. I looked up her uh, Wikipedia. She hasn't played in many of the uh, women's majors yet, just because I guess it's because she just turned pro. And because, you know, the, the women, they really come from either United States or Asia now. They're, the European segment is, I mean, there there are a good amount, but it's not, it doesn't produce the players to the same extent. But, um, yeah, it's... Uh, really nice accomplishment a you know a dominating performance and it'll be interesting to see what she does going forward on the lpga tour you know that's probably something the pga tour should do too is have a tournament where they do a mixed thing where okay men play this tee women play this tee and if you want to say there's a men's winner and a woman's winner instead of just one overall winner you can do that because what happened was when she won like the official world golf rankings doesn't know how to deal with it so what they did is they like they're giving stenson and uh i forget who else was tied with stenson at 15 under credit for the win but then they have to like 
knock down the amount of points they would get because there's two winners. They do the same thing at the um, tour championship. Whoever shoots the lowest score for the week, not including the uh, where they start at, gets credit for the win in the official world golf rankings. But uh, yeah, definitely a, a noteworthy accomplishment. And if you're looking to, you know, spice things up with the format, you know, th- that would not be a bad idea. And th- you know, there's definitely uh there's definitely venues where it would work out. So I think that's something the PGA tour should look to do. Very well said, Mike. I mean, it's really cool to see that. So I uh, uh, appreciate you being part of this again, Mike. Now let's go to John for final thoughts. And then at that point, we'll wrap it up. Yeah, I did see a, a little bit of that on um, a couple of weeks ago. I was like, you know, I'm watching golf in the morning. I'm like, Oh wow, this is crazy. This lady is just destroying all these guys. I actually turned it off. So I was like, shit, she's ahead by nine shots. She's going to win. Like there's no point in watching this anymore. But yeah, that's, that is crazy, and I definitely agree. If they're looking to like mix up kind of the, you know, the, the normal flow of tournaments throughout the year, like yeah, do a men's women's mixed event. Do like bring. I know they do the stable for an event for the Barracuda Championship or whatever, but bring that back for like a actual, you know, full field real event. The stable for scoring system points and whatnot. You know, they have the match, but like like spice things up a little bit and instead of just stroke play every single week. Maybe you do like a, a different kind of tournament every month i mean that's a way to kind of break up the monotony of it but yeah i mean what an interesting time we are in right now for golf with live and uh you know these guys staying or going and and how the tour is going to react it's going to be a fascinating next couple months before we before we hit the fall and um going to be we'll see where we are in a month when we come back for the the open championship for sure yeah, you go. You both were alluding to that, and uh, it is going to be a very interesting, just like this one was. It's going to be a very interesting podcast. It's more than just covering the event these days because there's just another world of golf happening right behind the scenes or on another part of the another part of the world. So, uh, with that, I say good good night, everybody. Mike, John, you've been tremendous. Thank you so much for your help, just breaking all that down. There's so much to unpack, and it really means a lot that you can help us out with that. So, uh, thanks again for your coverage. Uh, we send our best to Andy. Andy could make it tonight. He's uh, he's got he was busy with work, but uh, y'all, everybody, take care. Good luck to all your action. John, enjoy the tournament this weekend too. I, I uh, should be really fun. Take care, guys. guys. See you. Take care, everybody. Oh my goodness, Mike and John, tremendous job out of both. Like it's just it's just great to have them back on the show. Um, like as I was saying, it just it is such a fascinating time to be a fan of golf, and just so many moving parts and layers and. And uh, potential sketchiness involved too when it comes to the live tour, and that's a good one. That's it's it's a very this, this story just continues to turn and move and shake every single day, and we'll keep covering it as long as we can here on the Dick Cow Football Show. But we're glad to have you here. I, I thank you very much for being a part of this tonight, everybody. Um, we have a really good treat for you next week. So I know we haven't done any actual football in a month. But look, I promise we will resume the football coverage soon. But next week, you're not going to want to miss our show because what we're going to do is we are going to finally give you the Godfather 2 podcast with Kevin on the Cape and me. And we're going to do it in real time. So we're going to watch the movie and we're going to record the show while we watch the movie. And it's going to go out to YouTube at the same time. So you can see us watching Godfather 2 in real time and react in chat. It should be really fun. We don't want to miss that at all. Stay, follow us on all the scenarios. Uh, Twitter, at Zitcow, here on YouTube. 
uh, youtube.com slash ditcow or on our website with our podcast feed ditcow.com and all the podcast scenarios for our show if you're not doing those things already. My name is Dave Medina. It's really been good ha- really been good being here again here on Ditcow Football. We appreciate your time and uh, we hope you have a great rest of your week. Enjoy your weekend. It has been a absolute thrill doing this program again. Um, so take care, everyone. We're back with our special live reaction Godfather 2 show Wednesday night. Same, I think we'll do it at the same time. Maybe a little bit earlier. We might start at 8 o'clock Eastern. You'll see us when, when we're ready to go. And we'll see you next time.